Oh, hello there. My name is Grant, and you just happened to stumble across episode four of my podcast, The Wall of Wax. If you have not checked out my other three episodes, it would be amazing if you did. If you have, thank you. Uh, Again, my whole purpose and goal of this podcast is to hopefully inspire people to to check out other groups or bands or artists that you normally wouldn't or perhaps have just never heard of and and uh, whether you like them or you don't it it's just the the act of you know uh, exposing yourself to to new genres to new artists um and you know growing your taste whether you learn to love them or you learn to hate them or you strengthen the ones you love and you strengthen the ones you hate you know it's it's just all about exposure and and just just the willingness to to just check out these artists and these bands because there's just so much talent out there especially in you know in a world like now where where it's just so easy to to find artists um and and what just amazes me to this day is that said you can go to any record store and crate dig and you will find an artist from 50 60 whatever many years ago that nobody like your parents have never heard of i mean i do that all the time i i I send my parents um artists that i'm just like hey this was from when you were a teenager this is from when you were in college and they're like i've never heard of them and it just blows my mind because they're just amazing artists so there's just such a plethora of of artists and bands and groups out there that it's just it's just you you can never stop you know and and so Again, my goal is is just trying to just shed light on on some of these uh, artists and groups that I like. Um, again, it's kind of stemming from uh, you know selecting out of my collection, but I mean ultimately it's it's just it's just kind of digging into some of these interesting stories and and really just maybe hopefully lighting a fire to say you know I'll check them out and oh I kind of like that I didn't think I would like you know in this case punk music. But then realizing, huh, it's it's not as bad as I thought. Um, so yeah, that's that's my ultimate goal. And and so here on episode four, it's no different. The band, if you kind of you know stuck around through the end of episode three, you got a little bit of a clue. Uh, the band's name, believe it or not, is called Death. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You know, oh, I'm. I am not willing to check out any kind of group or band with that name in it. I refuse. Well, you're not alone because unfortunately that's the story, uh, the unfortunate story that this this band has heard over and over and over again throughout their career. They're not new to it. So you would not be alone in that. But I would would greatly, greatly implore you to do so. So that said, again band's name death i would first like to uh point out my sources i'm i'm going to continue to try to do much better at this because i i mean the the articles and the and the film and and so on that that i watch you know it's not just for me to do this research it is very important uh not well not only to give credit where credit is due but also to um invite this audience, um, whoever listens, to uh, to check them out as well because they're fantastic. So, uh, my sources. Uh, first off, uh, the autobiography by one of the band members, which his name is Bobby Dean Hackney. You'll hear about him. Uh, he has an autobiography called "Rock and Roll Victims: The Story of a Band Called Death." Fantastic autobiography. I'm. I'll admit, uh, I I wanted to try to have it done by the by the time I release this, but you know, again with life and so on, I'm I'm about halfway through it, uh, and then I I will admit I kind of skimmed through the last half once. I've already you know gotten all my other sources, so this was kind of the last one to kind of tie in with all the details, um, which is really what I wanted. And uh, but I I a hundred percent am finishing this autobiography, but so far it's been fantastic, very very descriptive, um, lots of great stories in there that you won't see in the documentary. Um, and so with that said, they do have a documentary. It was called it's called Before There Was Death, There Was a Band Called or God, Before There Was Punk, 
there was a band called Death, and it was released in 2012, uh, and it actually won multiple um, awards at um, various um, um, film festivals. And uh, I also watched, obviously, YouTube. Uh, there was a, a Blogspot uh, blog article by Alfred Snyder, um, a parent co-article, Wikipedia, like always. Duh. Um, and I would be doing a disservice if I did not kind of get on, you know, two knees and bow to a fantastic podcast that I'm just heartbroken is from what I hear is over. I hope, hopefully not long term, but it was called Rock Candy Podcast. It was with Ashley and Maggie, and I believe they're from New York. Uh, they are fantastic, um, and uh, they do episodes on all kinds of uh, artists. They're they're doing what I'm trying to do, or they I should say they did what I'm trying to do, um, and uh, it's fantastic. They start at Cracking Beers. And cheers in and, and just dive right into it. And, and, and I love the commentary. I wish I could kind of do that. I'm solo. So I can only really do that so much with myself without kind of feel like I'm going crazy a little bit. Um, but yeah, they're called Rock Candy. Um, it, unfortunately, it sounds like they paused or stopped for a while. But uh, I would, God, I really wish they, they continue it. Because, I mean, they're, I think they're 200 episodes in or something like that uh, when they, when they, kind of threw it in, threw in the towel but anyways fantastic podcast and i too am drinking a beer i am drinking silver moon uh hazy ipa uh beers called simon says and i quite enjoy it so that said death let's dive into it they are considered the first well they're considered the first all-black punk band and perhaps perhaps the first punk band in general uh, due to the date in which they started. I mean, within a couple years, you got Sex Pistols, you got several other uh, you know punk bands, but they are considered proto-punk, which essentially is like a garage-type band, you know, which is heavily heavily influenced and predated what later became punk music. So it's considered proto-punk. Uh, the members were three brothers, okay? David, Bobby, which is actually Bobby Sr. He ends up having a son named Bobby. Uh, so Bobby and Dennis, okay? They do have uh, another member who I will tell you about later, okay? His name was Bobby Duncan, but for the most of this story, it's the three brothers, David, Bobby, and uh, Dennis, Okay, D-A-N-N-I-S. So, kind of starts obviously like most things with uh, where they grew up, you know. And uh, um, they grew up in Detroit, Michigan, just like my last uh, 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 episode that I did. Uh, their parents, Majora and Earl. And uh, together, Majora and Earl had seven children. Four boys, okay, three of them, the... David, Bobby, and Dennis, and the oldest was uh, Earl, who, uh, excuse me, Earl Jr., who was uh, not in the band, and then three girls, so they had three sisters. Uh, Of the four brothers, again, Earl Jr. was the oldest, not a member of the band. Their father actually served in Korea um, in the military, and uh, when he got out, he served as an electrician for... A uh, automobile company, uh, if I remember correctly, and I, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember what their uh, what their mother did for a living. Um, but uh, he actually was uh, their father was also a Baptist minister, and so their dad was very into music. Uh, he wanted actually to learn the harmonica when he was younger, uh, and his father, who was also named David, used to play the guitar. And there, I think there's some photos of him playing uh, the guitar. So. You know, their dad really loved the blues. He would constantly play you know, records of Muddy Waters, B.B. King, and all the big names throughout the day in their house. Uh, and their mom also loved different styles of music. Uh, but, would you know, she liked to play Johnny Mathis, Patsy, uh, Patsy Cline, just Sammy Davis Jr. and whatnot. Uh, and the, so the brothers really got into music at a very young age. 
uh, you know, their parents would play one of two radio stations. There's a CKLW or WJLB AM, which was the local favorite. Uh, and she, they played every morning on this clock radio they had um, in the kitchen during uh, their breakfast every morning. Uh, and so the radio station played everything. So they grew to love multiple different types of music, and, and they really give credit to their parents uh, for, for exposing them to so many types of music, uh, which is a trait that uh, even Bobby says that he instilled into his kids, you know, just let them listen to whatever and find their passion. And so, yeah, their parents never held them back uh, and told them to just, you know, quote-unquote, listen to everything. So we're in 1964. Their dad made them sit down and check out the Beatles play on the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, could you imagine? It's, I mean, I, I could, they describe sitting there and just being in awe, which I'm, I'm sure I would obviously be as well. Um, but of course, this inspired the boys to want to put together a band, as I'm sure it did to thousands of other kids back at the time. So David would be the band leader. He was the one who really pushed the others to actually start a band. Um, however, initially they didn't really have that much money to do so, so they kind of had to make do with what they could find or create. So, uh, you know, so one day while skipping school, David found an abandoned guitar in an alley behind their house, and he started learning how to play. Dennis played on this makeshift waste paper basket drum, and to make it sound like a snare, he would put a couple heavy butter knives on the top of it. So, yeah, pretty inventive. And then Bobby had a guitar, uh, which was stolen, and then eventually uh, went out with his mother to find a new one and actually ended up spotting it in a pawn shop window. And when he went in there uh, to buy it back, ultimately, he actually noticed a beautiful sunburst red bass guitar for $130, and he knew he had to have it. So... Uh, that was the band right there. They started kind of teaching themselves how to play for the most part, self-taught, but they did have a a mentor that they noted named Dion, who was, I guess, a professional musician in Detroit at the time. Okay, so for the next few years, they practiced on and off, but they still worked small jobs. They delivered papers a lot. Uh, Occasionally, uh, they noted they shined shoes outside of bars or clubs for some extra money. Um, and they would stay out and they would check out these various bands or artists play. They actually, he, uh, Bobby noted in his autobiography, they loved watching country artists. They liked the clothes that they were wearing and so on. Uh, but they had to be home by their 11 o'clock curfew, not a second later. So fast forward a few years, 1968. Okay. This is only one month after Martin Luther King was shot, which I think was in April, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's May, and the Hackney family, of course, is just like with millions of other people dealing with the pain of Martin Luther King's assassination when their father, Earl Sr., passed away. So what happened was is he was uh, working with an apprentice. Again, he's an electrician. He was working with this new apprentice. Uh, he's a lineman. I, 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 I don't know if I mentioned that, but he was a lineman, not just an electrician. He was a lineman. He's working with this electrician, and uh, this apprentice supposedly struck uh, stuck a screwdriver in the wrong place, got electrocuted, fell off the, pearl, uh, the pole, and uh, Earl sees this, grabs him, throws him in the car, and rushes him towards the hospital. And on his way... There happens at the same time there was a drunk woman leaving a bar, backing out, and she backed out right in front of him without looking, and Earl ends up T boning, crashing right into the side of her, and he was killed instantly. So their dad's death hit all of them, obviously, very hard, uh, but David the most. Um, and so after that he 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 got he started getting a lot more spiritual. I mean again, all of them already were were, you know, religious and spiritual, but he, he really started, um, you know, getting a lot more deeper. And, um, so the next year in 1969, um, kind of, you know, skipping ahead a little bit, their mother ends up dating this man named Jesse Dixon. 
who really introduces the boys to rock and roll because he was actually the head of security for this team uh, for various events in Detroit. So thanks to him, they got to see some amazing artists play such as James Brown, Stevie Wonder, the Rolling Stones, so on, so on. And so uh, that was that was an amazing thing that that really opened their eyes to to some great rock bands. I mean, they started buying albums, you know, from Led Zeppelin, you know, from you know, you name it, and and uh, uh, really opening their eyes to rock and roll. Um, and they loved it. They ate it up. And uh, so in 1971, okay, so again a couple years later, their mother finally gets this big settlement from the uh, car accident that their father was in. So she used some of this money. She bought herself a new car, and you know they bought themselves some, some nice stuff, and uh, she ended up taking the boys to a music store and bought them all some instruments. So uh, this same year, they officially started their band, and they originally called themselves um, the Rock Fire Funk Express. Okay, and they chose this because they weren't really sure whether they wanted to be a funk band or a rock band. So they, they just went with, oh, let's call it Rock Fire Funk Express. Um, and uh, they actually had a, a favorite cousin of theirs uh, named Buster who would occasionally play with them in the summers. But, you know, it got to a certain point where they're like, okay, it's, it's just us three. Let's, you know, we're in this full time. So they, they just pursued with, with the three of them. Um and so uh, a little bit later, they're playing some gigs, and they ended up uh, meeting this manager named Don Cleft, who booked them in some small clubs and gigs. Uh, they also managed to get a demo tape recorded uh, with a couple songs at United Sound Recording Studio. Now, this studio is very famous. It saw some amazing talent. I mean, you got John Lee Hooker, who was there, Funkadelic, uh, Marv Johnson, Charlie Parker. Um, some amazing people have been through there. And uh, so they recorded all seven of their first, uh, all seven songs of their first album there, and all of those were written either uh, by David and or Bobby. So uh, a year later, 1973, from this session, they released their first single with the tracks "People Save the World" and self-titled "Rockfire Funk Express." From those two tracks, I'm in my opinion, they I. They definitely sounded more funkier, as the name suggests, but it was pretty smooth, a little bit more mellow. Uh, there's a nice groove, but I, I personally didn't get any punk-like um, notes from it, more like jazz-funk fusion, in my opinion. Um, so in 19... I think about the same year, maybe it was the end of 1972, Dennis actually attended an Alice Cooper concert with his mom. Uh, he went to the Kobo Arena in Detroit... And he loved it. I mean, Alice Cooper blew him away. And uh, he went back to his brothers and he was like, yo, this is what we got to do. We got to move into this harder type of rock um, with our band. Um, and initially they, they wrote him off. They're like, no, 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 no. This, you know, they weren't down with it. Um, however, that same year, David, okay, again, the band leader, older, um, he went and checked out The Who. And he became infatuated with Pete Townsend. He loved his style of playing. And this instantly made him change his mind and side with his brother. And he was like, yes, I agree. This is the direction we should move. So they did. Um, so now, next year, a year later, 1974, in May, three years after another accident that happened in 1971... Uh, in that accident, the boys and their mother were in this car. They were rear-ended. Um, they ended up getting a fat settlement. And this time, the boys each got about $5,000 each. And when they got that money, they went straight to the music store and they got the best instruments that they could buy. Uh, so, they began practicing every day. Their mom allowed them to practice in their room but only from three to six, and then they had to immediately cut it. Uh, I mean, they would pra uh, David would practice silently for hours. I mean, he would listen to other bands' uh, albums, and he would try to learn the guitar parts. I mean, he, he was in it. And, uh, uh, you know, they uh, actually started, when they were jamming, 
they were so popular that they started getting all these knocks on their door, specifically from girls who would hear them play and were like, I want to check this out. And they would try to knock on the door to go up there and, and listen to them. And so that inspired one of their hit songs called Keep On Knockin'. Uh, and basically, I guess it just kind of came together where David just threw some chords together and started the band started riffing off of that and just threw up some words on the spot. And uh, yeah, great song. Check it out. Um, and so the more, you know, the more they would play, they started kind of pissing off the neighbors because keep in mind, you know, for the most part in, in this, you know, in Detroit, I mean, it was, you know, the Motown. I mean, there what you didn't really hear rock and roll blaring through their, through their neighborhoods. So, and a lot of the neighbors weren't too keen on, on how loud they were playing because they played loud. Uh, they weren't too keen on how loud they were playing, that there was rock. And so they would frequently get the neighbors called, or the, excuse me, the police called on them um, for their noise. And uh, the cops would stop by from time to time and tell them they got to they gotta shut it down. So the more that, you know, people tried to change them and make them more into Motown and, and into the, you know, the norm, the more they rebelled, the more, the deeper and deeper they got into this passion to just keep rocking. So, I mean, more, I mean, which again, kind of adds to this punk factor, um, you know, just fighting, fighting this, this, the norm, fighting the system and, you know, doing your own thing. So, um, yeah. So again, they, they practice every day, but they promptly stopped at six, just to kind of keep the neighbors as happy as they could. And the same year, 1974, we're in 1974. The band knew that with this new this new instruments that they just got, this new strong drive and passion to really make this band thing work, they knew they needed to come up with a new name. And it ended up taking them a few weeks. And one day, David calls his brother and he says, hey, come up to this room. I got something to tell you. Go up there. And he's like, I got the perfect new name. You know, this is going to be it. This is it. And they're like, oh, you know, on the edge of their seat, what is it? What is it? And he's like, death. And at first, none of the brothers were down with it. They're like, no, what? And, uh, you know, he he kept kind of, you know, saying, you know, it's, you know it, it, it might add shock value, of which, of course, you know, it's, 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 it's a shocking name. But he, in, his, in his mindset, it's real. You know, death is something real. And so he wanted to try to change the meaning of this, not, you know, from a negative to a, to a positive. You know, it's not a good thing really and it's not a bad thing it's just a thing it, it is what it is and you know the brothers as much as they kind of didn't want to go with it a family value that was just deeply rooted in these boys is you know you you always back up your brother and so with that um instilled in them they decided to go with it and and actually, they they note in these interviews and and documentary and so on that they grew to love it and it, and it became their identity and who they are. So you know, looking back, they're they're glad that their brother was so forceful with this is what we need to we need to go with. And as you'll hear, it caused them many problems and ended up kind of initially being their downfall, but then you know saving them and making them um, infamous, or not infamous, sorry, but but you know. Um, making it later on down the road. So, um, little fun fact in their name. If you ever look up their, the name, their band name death, the a is actually replaced with a triangle. And this triangle represents David's idea of what he called the death triangle, um, which in his brain symbolizes the three elements of life, spiritual, mental, and physical. Okay. So this band decided they needed to get signed by a label. If we're going to make it, we got to get signed. But they couldn't decide on a label. So again, David one day comes in and he says, <clears throat> I got an idea. So he grabs the music section pages of the Yellow Pages book and he tacks them on the wall and he says, we're going to throw darts at it. Whichever record company a dart lands on, that's who we're going to go with. And the other brothers are like, all right, sounds good to me. So threw a dart, and it landed on Groovesville Productions. Now, the CEO and the music producer was a man named Don Davis, and they had um, they had such acts as, you know, Johnny Taylor, Albert King, Dramatics, some also some big, great names. So at this time, uh, 
the boys, the David is in his early twenties and Dennis and Bobby are in like late teens, maybe like 20. Um, and so they arrive at Grooseville, uh, and they were first auditioned by a name, they, a man named Brian Spears. Cause of course you're not just going to go in there and see the wizard. You know, you gotta, you know, you gotta prove yourself first. So, um, after hearing them, he absolutely loved them. He allowed them to record in United Sounds, uh, which again, you already know, is, is a very, very popular uh, recording studio. They recorded in 1975 with an, in, uh, with an engineer named Jim Vitt. Uh, Brian was so impressed that such young guys had so much to say and that every song just seemed, they just seemed to give everything they had. And when they finished recording, he took the tapes to Don and said, you have to check them out. And David was uh, Don was very resistant, and he told him no one would be interested in a band named Death. However, he was finally able to convince him to push it, and all they needed to do was find a label who would sign them. So Brian reached out to labels all over the country, overseas, anybody that they could they could find. They went from one corner of the earth to the other, and everybody turned them down, mainly because of their name. Finally, Don was able to get a meeting in New York with a man named Clyde Davis, who was the president of Arista Records. Now, still to this day, major, major record company. I mean, they've represented at one point or another, I mean, you name it kind of thing. Artists like Pharrell Williams, John Mayer, Santana, Diddy, Prince, Outkast, Biggie, Carrie Underwood, Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, I mean, you name it. Major, major A-list artists. Um, and they wanted, actually, to get involved with the band. They were willing to even give them a $20,000 offer. Okay, and, and keep in mind, this is in the 70s. A $20,000 offer uh, to a bunch of, you know, to some Detroit kids who, who haven't, again, haven't seen that kind of money. And so they were to the moon but the only stipulation was he wanted them to change their name and when david uh, was told this he was furious and sticking to his guns he said he told clyde davis to go to hell and he declined the offer the other brothers were just heartbroken they're like that you know they were just you know down and they just they were in disbelief that that he would do this but again going back to this you know instilled value of back your brother you know they they you know decided to side with their brother and um you know as reluctant as they were they you know again family first so they declined the offer and and to david's point his thinking was you know, if you give them your name, they'll take everything. They can take whatever they want. You know, which I can I can totally see, you know, because if you don't have your name, if you don't have that one piece of identity, what do you have? So that was that was his point. So again, they declined the offer reluctantly. And at this point, it's 1976, and Don was like, okay, I gotta release him. So when they did this, they gave him the news, David politely requested for the master tapes which i mean is just unheard of and to everybody's surprise they agreed so they gave the band their master copy and with that they printed up about 545 rpms which uh to those of you who aren't familiar those are the little records that usually have a song on each side so they made 500 of those. And, uh, you know, over time they would give some of those to various radio stations to play them on the air. But for the most part, radio stations would rarely play them. I mean, and this, again, mostly kind of due to their name, but also because around this time, disco was starting to dominate the airwaves. So, you know, disco was in now. And so they started thinking, you know, shoot, is, is, you know, does this mean, I guess, rock and roll is kind of dying out? So... Um, at this point, they ended up kind of starting to run out of money, 
starting to owe some owe some bills. So they ended up unfortunately selling their instruments to to kind of pay some of that. Um, and then one day, not too much time later, their uh, relative Donald Knight offers them to go to New England and kind of get away for a couple weeks. And this couple weeks ended up being like a permanent stay uh, for most of the brothers. Um, and they uh, moved to Burlington. And uh, when they got there, they loved it there. And they, you know, they, they kind of got this this drive and motivation back to kind of bring back this, uh, you know, the band. And um, they went out and bought some some new equipment again. And so David, kind of all excited, starts going around town and he's hanging flyers for the band on various poles and whatnot. And the flyer was literally a blank page with a black triangle in the center of it and the word death above it. That was it. Blank page, black triangle, and the word death above it. So, of course, you know, you're a local uh, citizen, you know, you're a cop, you see this. They're thinking that they're advertising some kind of cult. And every, any chance they could, just as fast as he could hang them, they started tearing them down. And the police threatened action against them if they didn't stop. So, you know, at this point, you know, they're getting rejected all over again, uh, just in a, you know, in a slightly different way. And they were fed up. They were fed up from that and from all the rejection in the past. And they, they're like, we got to finally change this name. Um, so uh, they finally decided to convince David and a little bit of time later, David comes back and he says, all right, I got a new name for us. We'll call ourselves the Fourth Movement, uh, which the brothers were quick to say okay to since it was no longer death. So they're now called the Fourth Movement. And with this new band, they changed their sound to, a, in my opinion, more spiritual, um, you know, gospel sound. And many people actually liked it. They just didn't really like the the preachy lyrics that that they were putting out, and it just it just what well, didn't really resonate too well with the younger audience. In fact, one local school wrote about this in uh, one of their papers, and David happened to see it, and uh, you know he took it personal, and it was just another smack to their ego, you know, adding to all this rejection that they've already received. So you know, with this, you know, this was just kind of like the one of the final straws. Uh, that wanted David, you know, wanted David wanted to to just move back to Detroit. So uh, he kind of went out, reached out to his brothers, and he was like, "Hey, let's move back to Detroit. Uh, I want you guys to come with me." Um, but at this time, the both brothers kind of already settled in, and Bobby had just gotten married to a woman named Tammy. They had a kid named Bobby Jr., um, and so they didn't they didn't want to go back. So David ended up going back to Detroit all by himself. Um, so. David moved back to Detroit in 1982, uh, and he was married to a woman named Heidi Simpson. Um, and uh, at this time, he wasn't working. He was just kind of playing music, trying to figure things out. Um, and back in uh, Vermont, the other two brothers continued their band. They continued practicing as normal, thinking that eventually uh, their brother would come back. You know, maybe this was just a kind of short, short-term trip back, and he'd he'd return. But he, he, after a year or so, he still hadn't. So Bobby and Dennis decided, well, let's just carry on and let's start a new band. So this time they created a reggae band called Lamb's Bread, one word, and they formed this in 1983. And their thought was, okay, everybody loves reggae, and it was really a nice relief from just all this fighting they've had to do with, you know, with the system, with rock and roll. So they also had this, this bonus, which is that in this genre, it's heavily, heavy bass, heavy drum dominated. And that's the two instruments that they played. So it was kind of a nice, nice, uh, you know, uh, thing for them to be able to kind of transition over into. And so, you know, with this, uh, band, they released a total of four albums, uh, and the first album, if I remember correctly, is called Truth of It Is. So David, of course, didn't like that too much. I mean, mostly it was because they switched genres from rock to reggae, but also the fact that they just carried on without him. So despite how fun and outgoing he was, David unfortunately started drinking pretty heavily. Uh, in the documentary, the, the nephews and the brothers speculate that it was 
partially or mostly due to the fact that you know he was just such a visionary and to have this dream of his with it with this band fall through and not make it anywhere it, it just it really crushed him um and uh what's kind of crazy is that his his wife Heidi was uh, displaying an old diary of his in this documentary um where each daily entry was just kind of like a poem just so deep uh, just like he was known to be and just and just very spiritual at times um and one thing that she noted he had told her, which actually prequels what ultimately happens with the band, is that he said it wouldn't be after until after his death that his music would finally be appreciated, which is so sad to 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 hear because it ultimately is what happens. But um, you know he predicted that, and uh, you know so David it, uh, it continued to make music as well. You know, he recorded uh, at one time under the pseudonym Rough Francis, and he released only one single uh, on a 45 with a couple tracks on it um, in 1991, if I remember correctly. Um, so not much outside of that. Um, fast forward quite a bit. The last time uh, his brothers uh, remember seeing him was in 2000, and uh, he was filming his brother's uh, Danis's wedding, and they they noticed that he he looked a lot more frail, and uh, just just overall not so well. And when they approached him about it, you know, he brushed him off. He said, "No, nah, everything's all right. Everything's all right. It's fine." Um, but before David left, he actually had brought with him all of these master tapes, and he asked his brother Bobby to hold on to them. He trusted that these these tapes would remain safe with him. And he told him, going back to what, what his wife said, he said, one day the world's going to come looking for these. And I, I, you know, I want you to hold on to them and keep them safe for, for when that day comes. And uh, he handed them to his brother. And he said, you know, when you finally do make it one day, I'm not going to be there to see it. And that was kind of the first clue, you know, one of the first clues that really let you know told him that you know something's not going something's not right here something's going on um and a few months later they got a call from earl which again is their older brother saying that david was dying and that uh, he had terrible lung cancer due to his um bad habit with with cigarettes um and so on october 9th of 2000 david passes away and so for the next matter of years danis and his and bobby continue with with their band um mourning the loss of their their brother um but again carrying on and and carrying on with this new band um and they actually had some pretty decent success and uh and got a pretty pretty good following from it and they were enjoying that um so now fast forward to 2008 and this is where things start getting pretty crazy pretty interesting so other side of the country San Francisco. Jello Biafra, whose real name is Eric Boucher, uh, found Death's 45, and the name Politicians in My Eyes captured his attention immediately. And for those of you that don't know who that is, he was actually the uh, former lead singer and songwriter for the band Dead Kennedys. Um, and so a man, another man named Ben Blackwell was interviewing Jello for an article he was doing, and he was informed by another friend uh, that Jello has this box with the death single in it. And he had heard a little bit about him, so he decided to, to check out some of their music and fell in love with them, absolutely loved it, and so he, he purchased this, this 45. And he knew immediately that... To his surprise, since there wasn't that much uh, a t um, hype and attention about you know with this band, he knew he had to get their name out. So he started making copies of this 45 onto CD, and he started giving them out. He would give them out to to people he knew, like he said, people he didn't know, um, and he eventually gave it to a man named Henry Owings, who ran a magazine in Atlanta called Chunklet Magazine, and. Uh, he posted an article for it as well on the Chunklet website. And uh, on this article, at the very bottom, he included two MP3 uh, links to, to a couple of their songs. 
So, remember this. Now, elsewhere, there was a man named Don, whose nickname is Das. Uh, I think it's Schwink. And uh, he was a friend of the band back in the 70s. Uh, 1976, I think they referred to specifically. And he did the artwork for their 45s at the time. And since the band didn't have much money, he said, they would just pay him by giving him copies of their records. So he had a, a bunch of their records uh, that he would slowly give out, but he just kind of failed over the years and just had a collection that he sat on. So one day he goes into this record store uh, of Don's, and uh, the, I think it's called Car City Record in Detroit, and he would frequently buy from there. He would, um, um, I guess he was known for buying cool albums. And one day he just casually got into conversation with Matt and handed him a copy of this record. And he kind of said, you know, hey, I used to, you know, do promotion for them and, and, uh, you know, I promised them I'd get their name out and I kind of failed over the years and I stumbled across these the other day and I thought, you know, better late than never. So, um, you know, here's, here's a couple for you to, to hand out to your friends. Now, uh, Don was already aware of this album and how, and how rare it was. He didn't necessarily know the monetary value of it, but he knew it was, it was a pretty rare album. And so, um, of course he's kind of probing him, gets the story and, uh, decides to list one of them on eBay. And he put, he added a buy now price of $800. So on eBay you can, you can bid, but you know, they'll also list the buy now price at times if they're like, Hey, you know, if if you want to skip the bidding process, this is basically what I'm asking for. And another man I'm throwing out a lot of names here, but another man named Robert Manis uh, was a huge fan of them and had been desperately searching for one of these albums and happened to spot this on eBay and picked it up. So, you'll hear about him later. Let's go back to the um, um, Ben Blackwell. And he, uh, uh, again, he posted an article about 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 them in a couple of mp3s right so one of uh bobby's sons his name is julian okay he moved out to la with one of his friends and he uh used to go to these his friend was going to these listening parties where they would hang out and have a dj spin some old tracks and check out some cool artists um and one day this friend came back the roommate of julian and was just going on and on and on about this band she had heard called Death. So Julian decides to search for their music online, and he came across this article, this chunklet article on the website. And he found the MP3 links that were there. He clicked on them and listened, and immediately he knew that was his dad's voice. And he read a little bit into it and saw that it, you know, it was three black brothers from Detroit, uh, a little bit read a little bit more about their story and he and this confirmed it like this was his dad and his uncles and so he calls his dad and he's like do you realize how much hype is around your band and how many people are like listening and loving your music and I re- initially Bobby was like are you talking about lamb's bread or or what are you what are you talking about and uh, he's like no 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 he's like you had a 70s a band in the 70s called death and his his dad was like oh yeah, yeah, I have, I had, I had that band, you know, and and he's freaking. He's like, "Why didn't you tell me?" And so he calls and he uh, tells his brothers. They too couldn't believe it, and they're they're checking out the music, and they're they they tell uh, how their hair stood up, and they just start shaking in excitement. And uh, so Bobby started calling his friends, and he knew he needed to spread the word as well. So. He gets his friends to post on message boards who post on message boards and so on and so on. And eventually it got reposted so many times that it just spread like wildfire. So remember this Robert uh, Manis guy I told you who bought the album on eBay for $800. Well, he saw one of those message boards and he contacted some friends that he had at Drag City Records and he told them, hey, you got to check out this this band. So of course they agreed and they ended up agreeing on a record deal. And on February 17th, 2009, about th- about 35 years later, they utilized those master tapes that they had been told to save from their brother David. 
And then they finally released their first studio album called For the Whole World to See, which was a uh, a title that David had written on the master tapes uh, back in the day. So they went with that. Uh, and being inspired by uh, their father and uncle's story, the three son of Bobby, uh, the three sons of Bobby, uh, which are Bobby Jr., Julian, and uh, Orion, uh, they knew that they had to continue their father and uncle's legacy and decided to continue playing their old songs in a new band together uh, with a couple other guys. And they decided to call their band Rough Francis in honor of their late uncle David. Uh, their first show was in, I think it's pronounced Winooski, W-I-N-O-O-S-K-I, in Vermont in 2008. Hopefully I didn't butcher that. So their first show was in 2008, and then in 2009, a man named R- Mike Rubin was a free- freelance writer who saw a show of Rough Francis in the Monkey House in Vermont and decided to do a piece on them and, and their uh, father, uh, excuse me, their their uncle and father's band, the original band, and uh, that article ended up making it into the New York Times. Now, once this article made in New York Times, it took them to a whole nother level. Uh, famous musicians started gaining word of them. Uh, people such as like Henry Rollins uh, from the Black Flag, Kid Rock, Quest Love, who's from the Roots, and Elijah Wood, believe it or not, who, to my surprise, was actually the CEO of a record company called, I think it's Simeon Records. Uh, which only lasted like 10 years. It ended in 2015. But uh, yeah, I mean, just tons of A-list celebrities got word of them. And one of those people happened to be Joey Ramone from the Ramones' brother, uh, Mickey Lee. And he got word of them uh, through, through again, through friends. And uh, it was just, he was so in awe of what he heard. And he knew he had to reach out to them somehow. Uh, finally, he was able to reach out to Bobby Jr., and ask if they would be willing to play Joey Ramone's annual birthday bash that they do every year, uh, who who had actually died in 2001, but they still, of course, are, are celebrating it. Um, and he called his dad, Bobby, and he said, you know, would you be willing to do this? And of course, his, you know, his the father and, and the uncle were, were hesitant because, you know, to them, not only has it been so long, but to, it was just, it was mainly just tough doing it without David. Um and when they eventually started considering it, you know, they came across the tough question of, well, well who's going to play guitar if we do this? And they had both been working and loved working with this guitarist of theirs in, in Lambspread. And it was a guy named Bobby Duncan, who I mentioned in the beginning of this. And Bobby agreed and promised he would do his absolute best to, to sound as close to David as he could, both in passion and in talent. Um, and so when they finally got together and started playing, they played their first song, which was Keep On Knockin', great hit of theirs. And within a matter of seconds into the song, they had to stop playing. And initially, you know, Bobby was thinking he did something wrong. Um, and uh, the brothers apologized and, and uh, said, you know, they, was just, they were just crying and reminiscing because he sounded just so amazing and just so much like David. And, uh, so they were fantastic together. They continued playing shows and doing a bunch of small tours up until recently. I can't find anything saying if they're still doing shows, but they were doing shows well up into the 20 teens. Um, and Rough Francis, which again is their Bobby's kids playing, uh, the cover of all their old songs. They're still playing and actually recording new music and touring to this day. Uh, you could check out their website. Um, in an interview, uh, you know, Bobby and, and Dennis noted that, you know, they have no animosity towards any other bands that got more fame than they did, you know, especially with the type of music they were playing. Cause you know, to them, they didn't really, they didn't really know what the word punk was. They, I mean, to them, punk was, you know, like, don't be a punk. It it just, it, it wasn't really like what it is today. And so these bands that, you know, like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, and so on, you know, they they didn't really see them as competition. They just, they were all just rockers. They are all just doing what they love to do. So, you know, they, you know, of course, I'm like I've said with past artists that I've covered, you know, they, of course, looking back, yeah, they kind of wish that they had a little bit more fame or a little bit more success. But, 
you know, ultimately they're they're just such humble people. I mean, that's the biggest thing you'll note if you watch any of these um, documentaries or interviews is just how warm and 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 loving and and positive these guys are. Like glass half full, you know, to a T. I mean, they're such you know great people, and so they're, they're trying to look at the you know look at the bright side of things and um, very spiritual, very you know very um, caring people. So I sincerely loved watching this, the documentary, reading uh, Bobby's autobiography. Um, I'm very excited to finish it. And I cannot say it enough, you know, that I, I, I you know, you got to check out their music. And again, this documentary won multiple film festival awards. I mean, it's very well done. So you can't go wrong checking that out. Yeah, check them out on Spotify, anywhere you get your music. They have plenty of videos on YouTube. You won't be disappointed. Uh, thank you for checking out um, this episode, and if you stuck with it until the very end, I, I greatly appreciate you. I'm going to try to just keep working on dialing this thing in. You know, for now, a, a lot of this is just kind of, I kind of just go off of notes and and uh, fill in the blanks, and some of it's on the spot, some of it I try to prepare in advance. Um, I'm hopefully going to just dial it in as, as I continue in the episodes. Um, but yeah. My uh, my usual thing I do now is if you stuck around until the end, uh, I'll give you kind of a little clue on what the next episode, episode five, is going to be about. Um, so the next episode is a blues artist, and I was very fortunate that I have actually watched him play twice, um, once in Portland and once up in uh, Alene Casino uh, up in Washington. But he is still alive, still kicking, still playing. He's got a uh, a club in Chicago, actually, called Legends, if that gives any kind of clue. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited to do an episode on him. And uh, yeah, I can't say it enough. Thank you for everybody that tuned in, and I will see you next time.